What's up, Wildside besties and baddies? I'm Bailey. And I'm Chelsea. And we're here to walk you through the wild sides. From homicides to hostides and everything in between. We're so glad you're here. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. I was never, I never became the parent that I thought I was going to be. Like the parent I was before I had kids is totally different from the parent that I am now that I have kids. Yeah. Yep. I just got a, um, it was probably a couple uh, weeks ago now, but I was at work, literally, I was on a Zoom call with my boss getting, like, doing supervision. And I look over and I read a text message from Zach and he was like, your daughter. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. What happened? He was just like, I, you know, I walk away for two seconds because you always hear that, right? And he was like, and I came back. She climbed up on the counter, took her diaper off, and took a shat on the kitchen counter. Mm-hmm. And I just, I tell people all the time that I'm really tired of eating crow Mm -hmm. because before I had children, I was the most obnoxious person. I was like, my child will never act like that. My child will never throw a fit in Cracker Barrel. My Mm -hmm. child will never. Mm -hmm. If that were my kid, they would, I would, dot, dot, dot. Oh, no, I actually love crow so much. It's actually my favorite dish to eat because I eat it all the time. All the time. I'm like a crow, crow connoisseur at this point in my life. You know, and the way that kids respond, my kids respond to me is totally different from what I envisioned them, how, how they would respond to me. So I... I try not to get on my kids too much. I try not to nag or really like drop the hammer, but I, man, I had to drop the hammer the other day on my sixth grader and it was a whole thing. And, you know, time had passed maybe an hour and a half, two hours. And he comes up to me and he grabs my hand and he says, mom. And I said, yes. And he looked at me deadpan in the face. And he said, I forgive you. I was like, you, you forgive me. It was like, it's like that key and pill episode. I said, did you say that? Oh yeah. I said that. Oh, I said that. Oh, I know. I, I looked at him and I was like, thank you. Thank you. I forgive you actually as well. Being a, a-hole because you were an a-hole you were a jerk hole and i had to drop the hammer and i hate dropping the hammer i hate dropping the hammer but yeah it's um it's a humbling um it's a humbling experience it's obviously super cliche it's like the best experience ever i truly would never trade being a mom um it's it's awesome and i really love my kids i think i'm i think i'm a better like preteen and teenage parent Mm -hmm. than I was a little kid parent. I mean, maybe, maybe I was an okay little kid parent, but I feel like I'm in my groove now that they're a little bit older. So, so I wonder if you guys, did y'all struggle with this before you had kids? Did you were like, Oh, this is the type of parent I'm going to be. I know exactly that my kid is going to respond to me this way or 
were you in for a pleasant surprise? No, if you cannot relate to that, actually don't comment. Actually do not. (laughs) Or just write a book. Right? Let us, yeah, stop, stop gatekeeping. Yeah, quit keeping all of your secrets. Um, Speaking of things that we don't need to keep a secret, we did get another fantastic review. So we did get one from um, D-B-E-T-H-T. D-Beth T? Yeah, maybe D-Beth T. That sounds like, that sounds logical. But thank you, thank you, D-Beth T, for your super super sweet podcast review on apple it just makes me happy like we just love it so much and we love you guys so much and we hope that you are enjoying this process as much as we are enjoying this process because this has Mm -hmm. been amazing now with that being said i have a feeling that i'm not going to enjoy this process of you telling me this case because we have debated on this case. I still know nothing about this case other than I know that we have been, you have been debating on sharing this case with us. So I've had this case written up for months. I feel like you had this case written up before we even launched officially. We did. I did. I actually had never heard of this case until I was doing research. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that there's a lot of a lot of podcasts and YouTube videos about this case, but we, we actually had requests from listeners to do this case because they wanted to kind of hear how we would do it. Um, I struggled with if we were going to do this because of the totally horrific nature of this case and just the extent of the awfulness that happens. And so the victim in this case, I, I feel wrong talking about what happened to her, but I also feel that it's important to talk about what happened to shine some light and to um, bring some awareness. Yeah. Okay. And the more that we've covered the dark side of stuff, the more that I feel, I, I feel convicted that we need to not turn a blind eye to the right dark and the negative the evil if you will in this world um because it doesn't it doesn't stop and it doesn't go away just because you don't want to look at it yeah yeah and this case has literally been referred to as the worst true crime case of all time this is going to be a rough case this is actually a case that is not based in the US, so we're going outside of our bubble again. This case is actually from Japan. Hmm. And I'm sure people who might have heard this one before go, oh, I know which one she's talking about, and you're probably right. No, I have not. Yeah. And so I'm not even giving a trigger warning in the episode. This entire episode is a trigger warning. It's going to involve sexual assault it's going to involve um torture it's going to involve murder it's going to involve it all so if that is not your jam this episode is not your jam because literally it's like the whole episode this is the case of 
Junko Furuta. Okay. Okay. So I'm just going to, without further ado, I'm just going to jump right into it. So Junko Furuta was born on January 18th, 1971 in Misato, Saitama Prefecture in Japan. And of course, I just want to be considerate and apologize in advance if I have a funky accent on some of these names. Um, I did research it and I am uh, doing my best with it. Junko lived with her parents, an older brother and a younger brother. It's been widely reported that Junko's parents wish to have a highly private life since they lost Junko. And to be honest with you, I couldn't even find the, the family members' names mm. because Japan is really big from the research that I did. Japan is really big about protecting like victims' families' privacies mm. and not publishing. It's a very respect thing. Like yeah. I think investigative reporters could report on it if they want but the culture is that they do not yeah yeah okay. all reports were that junko led a relatively normal life at the time as a child and as a teenager so she had a pretty relatively normal life growing up she grew up in a loving and close-knit family and her loved ones always encouraged her to follow her dreams during her teen years, Junko attended Yashio Minami High School. She was a honor roll student. I don't know if that's the same kind of verbiage for Japan, but she made excellent grades and she was quite popular. She was beautiful. If you guys um, haven't looked her up, she was just, she was beautiful. She got along with her peers and had dreams of becoming an idol singer. In fact, the night that she was abducted, so a little bit of a spoiler alert, <laughs> she had been looking forward to going home to watch the final episode of the television show Tonbo, which was a Japanese drama. Okay. She worked part-time at a plastic molding factory after school in order to save up money for graduation for a graduation trip that she had planned. So she's doing everything she's supposed to be doing. She was well-liked by her peers. She didn't drink, she didn't smoke, she didn't do drugs. This gave her the reputation as, quote, good girl. And she was considered to be a little naive by the more troublemaker crowds. So she was pretty straight-laced as far as her reputation was concerned. This is giving me Heather Kwan vibes. Yeah. Like, I am having, the, I'm like having flashbacks of hearing about that case of Heather Kwan. And I'm just like, Oh, like so on it and frugal and smart and conservative and just all, all things, of it. especially as a parent, like all the things that you're like, oh man, this is so good. Look at how well my child is doing. I'm so proud of them. Oh yeah. So Junko was well-liked by her peers. Again, she had a reputation as a good girl and she just did her thing, man. She went to school, she went to work, and she just kept to herself and stayed out of trouble. Despite this, it didn't stop her from garnering the attention of an individual by the name Hiroshi Miyano. Okay. Hiroshi Miyano was known as the school bully, often bragging about connections he had to the Yakuza. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I kind of dug into this as well. The Yakuza 
really is kind of an umbrella term for the Japanese mob, if you will. Hmm. And they control everything from like sex work to gambling, and they have political pool with political players. Hmm. Okay. Okay. The Yakuza typically has strict rules like most mafia entities do. And this, these rules generally includes no harm to innocence. And fun fact, the pinky promise actually originates from this because if you stepped outside of this rule box by the Yakuza, they would cut off the tips of your pinky as a punishment. And so that's where the pinky promise comes from. Hmm. I wonder if all these people that have like the pinky, like one half of the pinky promise symbol on the back of their arm, I wonder if they all know that what they're tattooing onto the back of their arm is a Japanese mob consequence. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, like how awkward would that be to be in the grocery store line and be like, excuse me, madam. Do you know what that pinky promise tattoo means on the back? No, I would just let them live their best life. (laughs) Yeah. So unfortunately, Hiroshi was known as a predator and a gang rapist with other members of his friend group. According to some of Junko's classmates, she had caught his attention, like I said, and he had what would be kind of considered a crush on her but she was like, nah, she was not interested. Mm. Junko's dismissal of Hiroshi enraged him and threw fuel on the already psychopathic fire. No. As you can imagine, a guy like Hiroshi doesn't take well to rejection. And this is where the nightmare begins. A few days after the rejection, Hiroshi Miyano and his friend Nobuharu Minato were hanging around at a local park in Misato. You know, hanging around, preying on innocent women as they usually did in their free time. On November 25th, 1988, around 8.30 in the evening, Junko was riding her bike home from work and Hiroshi Miyano was in a nearby park with his friends and he saw her riding home. After being spotted by Hiroshi and one of Hiroshi Miyano's gang friends, Nobuharu Minato, attacked Junko and kicked her off of her bike. Unbeknownst to Junko, this was all part of a sick, twisted, wicked scheme by three psychopaths and their ringleader, Hiroshi. Yep, the same guy who got his feelings hurt because she said no. Okay. Out of nowhere, Hiroshi stepped in pretending to be a concerned bystander and helped Junko off the ground. After helping her up, continuing with the rescue charade, Hiroshi offered to escort Junko home. And very unfortunately for Junko, she accepted and she, after this point, never saw her loved ones again. Hiroshi ended up taking Junko to an abandoned warehouse where we can only assume there were evil and nefarious motivations. And we will find out that's exactly what he had in mind. Will you please give me one second? How old are these people? Can you give me a roundabout age at this? So literally in the next few sentences, I'm going to do that. Okay. But there's, um, 
17 to 18, 16 to 18. Yeah. Once they got to, once they got Junko to the warehouse, Hiroshi brutally raped Junko. He told her of his Yakuza connections and threatened to kill her and her family if she made a sound. Soon after, Hiroshi called Nobuharu, the one who attacked her on the bike, Joe Ogura, 17, Yasushi Wantabe, 17, to initially brag about what he had done and then to bring them in on the crime to help hide Junko away. Can I stop you really quick? Do you remember what mom always told us growing up? Like if we were ever abducted or kidnapped or anything like that, and that mm -hmm. she was like, kick, scream, like it doesn't matter if they say that they're going to kill you or kill your family, like they're probably going to kill you anyway. So put up the biggest freaking fight that you can. Yes. But I think this is a little bit more complicated because um, I'm going to get into this a little bit later. But the Yakuza, I read somewhere in a totally unrelated case the other day that Japan's Yakuza is the largest and wealthiest gang in the world. Mm. Okay, so they're not like some, you know, crooked letter, crooked letter street gang. Like they are a well-organized, <laughs> they're a well-organized criminal gang back, back. Ah. yeah so and okay. and we're gonna get because we're gonna see a lot of people not stepping in okay so i'm i'm essentially kind of projecting our cultural like beliefs and yeah. norms on a culture that has a different set of yeah just mm -hmm. it's just a little different okay continue once the other boys arrived hiroshi miyano and the other individuals took turns gang raping Junko. When Junko failed to arrive home from work that evening on November 25th of 88, her parents knew something was wrong because again, Junko was very regimented. She stuck to her habits. She did what she was supposed to do. She followed the rules. She had a good head on her shoulders. She was reliable and would not go lengthy periods of time without contacting her family. So when she didn't return home from school or work, her parents and some volunteers initially searched the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Junko was nowhere to be found, at least in the neighborhood. And so on November 27th, two days after she went missing, her parents made contact with police and essentially filed a missing persons report. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly if that's the same name in Japan as it in the, right. as it is in the States, but it's the same kind of concept. Right. Right. That makes sense. During this time, in order to keep Junko captive for continued exploitation and without raising suspicions, Hiroshi and the other rapists and soon to be captors took Junko to a vacant house in Adachi, Tokyo, that was owned by Nobuharu's family. It was here where Hiroshi forced Junko to call her parents and tell them that she would be staying at a friend's house for a while and she was safe and to call off the investigation. They promised that she would not be hurt if she complied with their demands. I'm going to do just a spoiler alert here. Junko would be held captive 
for 44 days. Gosh. And experienced things that most of us wouldn't even have nightmares about. Now you have to ask yourself, how could someone keep this girl for a month and a half without raising suspicion? Well, this whole story is so twisted. These guys are terrible human beings. And so what they ended up doing is they forced her to pose as Nobuharu Minato's girlfriend. So whenever his parents were around, like, hey, who's this new new girl? They were told that this was his girlfriend. It was reported that eventually his parents realized that something wasn't right since she was around so much. But unfortunately, and here it is that I was talking about, the threat of the Yakuza coming after them was enough to keep them quiet. Okay. So the kids, the kids, the 17 year old boys are in this Yakuza, but the parents are not affiliated with that gang, even though their children are, and their children are living at home with them. Do they know that their kids are part of the that gang? I don't think that all of the kids are, but Hiroshi was allegedly part of it. And he knew people in the Yakuza. Okay. He was just kind of a shitty human and his friends were just kind of shitty humans. So they weren't officially part of that Yakuza gang? No, not from my understanding. No, okay. I'm just trying, I, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to figure out as a parent, right? Where I'm like, again, and I think this is why it's so important to, before you start making assumptions or uh, before you start jumping to conclusions, like understand that, you know, cultural, culturally, there are very, very vastly different norms and systems and things like that. But it's so hard for me to, like if it were my kid, I would be like, who is, no, who is this child that is always at our house? Well, this is also the 80s too. I know. I Yeah, I, exactly. And that's totally I'm, different than culturally than it is now. And this is Japan. And I can't speak to that because I've literally never been to Japan. So, yeah. Okay. So the parents are like, who's this person? It's my girlfriend. Okay, cool. And they lived in determined ignorance of what was happening, happening. Okay. So it's reported that after the captors realized that Nobuharu's parents were not going to report them, they became even more brazen and dropped the facade. Now, quite literally in a prison and locked behind closed doors, Junko was subjected to daily rapes, sometimes multiple times a day. This had progressed not only the boys raping Junko, but also other boys and men that the four captors knew. Records state that the worst day involved 12 different men raping Junko. At the end of the whole ordeal, Junko was raped by approximately 100 different men over the course, over the course of her confinement with over 400 different instances. Partway through the ordeal, Junko had managed to obtain a phone and she called for emergency services. However, she was caught before she could say anything and they hung up the phone. When the police called back, Hiroshi somehow managed to convince them that there was a no emergency and that it had all been an accident. 
Because of her attempt, Junko was punished. They poured lighter fluid on her legs and lit her legs on fire. It's been reported that due to the brutality and pain of her abuse, Junko would quite frequently beg for her captors to kill her, but they would never give her that mercy, per their reports. Within the first 20 days, almost three weeks of this horrific abuse, Junko's body began shutting down. It's reported that Junko could no longer walk from the daily brutal and excessive beatings she was facing. The captors would assault her with a variety of objects, bludgeoned her, and mutilated her body. Even though it was December in Japan, she was often forced to sleep outside on the balcony overnight several times or locked in the freezer for hours at a time. If this wasn't horrific enough, Junko was forced to remain naked the entire time as a humiliation tactic. They made her dance naked and masturbate in front of them just for their own perverse amusement. Towards the latter half of her captivity, Junko had been broken beyond repair. She got to the point where she could only breathe through her mouth because blood filled her nasal cavity from the abuse. She had been beaten so badly that her stomach would no longer accept water. Anytime she would try to drink water, she would immediately throw up. It would take her hours to crawl from upstairs to downstairs to go to the bathroom before she collapsed from weakness. Quickly, she was confined to Nobuharu's room because she had no energy and physically could not move. And what is crazy here is that it was reported that her brain literally shrunk in size as a result from the endless abuse by the time she ended up dying. There, there are no words. Like, I'm not really even going to talk about this. But what I do find interesting, you know, I, I recently had to take a U.S. history class, right? And part of that class, I was assigned to research and then write a paper on dropping of the atomic bomb on on japan right on hiroshima and nagasaki where are we going with this well what i'm saying is it is very interesting that japan does seem to have a history of excessively brutal and violent tactics so one of the things that i had to research was the baton death march that the japanese forced the american and filipino prisoners of war um and that was in 1942 but just kind of like learning about some of the history and in ja japanese like i said their tactics and their um the way that they view their prisoners was was very interesting but like i said i did have to research some of the history on their war tactics and how they again treated their prisoners of war and how they treated their prisoners in general and that was one of many examples so i find it interesting um that these individuals these these young men treated her in such a brutal way but i also wonder if again it is 
there was some sort of generational or they had been exposed maybe to stories of their mm, like the brutality of it the brutality of it does that make sense yeah i i think just the fact that you had to do the research and and as an observation that brutality was a part of like it was a part of their history war tactics yeah, yeah. Th there it was a part of their history um and again there were multiple especially during world war ii there were multiple instances of really i mean extreme extreme violence you know i actually really appreciate that perspective because i think that's a valid observation mm -hmm. that plays into potentially the severity from this case you know it, it's not far-fetched that these these kids um who were 18 they were born in the 70s which means what their maybe parents or grandparents were probably a part of the war Correct. and that's not too far from home right no no it really wasn't it's not like that was you know four or five generations back i mean that's literally something that could have been talked about yeah. um, around dinner tables or uh, yeah. again that's that's projecting onto what their family life looked like yeah and again also not to say that we don't have brutality in the united states or in other parts of the world that was just the only thing i could think of was man that i i've kind of heard of this behavior yeah. before within the japanese culture yeah yeah that makes sense okay um so one of the most tragic parts about this case is that this all could have been prevented. There were actually two times that police were alerted to the situation, but they failed to intervene. Mm -hmm. The first time the authorities were alerted to the capture and the abuse of Junko was by Hiroshi, Hiroshi Miyano's friend, his friend's brother. So what had happened was Hiroshi had invited his friend over to his house where Junko was being held captive. Mm -hmm. He saw the condition that she was in, and it was an absolutely horrific state. Mm -hmm. The boy then went home and he told his brother about what he had seen, and the brother told his parents who contacted the police. Mm -hmm. Right? Finally, somebody's like, hey, we should probably contact yeah, this the authorities. This isn't normal. Right. They showed up at, Minot at the Minato residence where obviously Junko was being held captive and tortured, mm -hmm. but they were assured by the family that there was no girl inside. Mm -hmm. The answer clearly was satisfactory for police. They never returned to the home and they never went inside. Mm. The second time, as we discussed earlier, was when she made the phone call, but it was connected before she could speak to anyone. Right, right. So as I had mentioned, Junko was held for 44 days. During that time, she was subjected to honestly the most horrific experiences that like literally my brain can't even process. Mm -hmm. And you guys have to remember i'm a trauma therapist i've heard the most horrific shit mm -hmm. i mean you you name it i've sat in that with clients but this is it's like something stephen king couldn't even come up with right yeah 
So according to Katie Serena's article inside the grisly murder of Junko Furuta, the teenage girl who was tortured for 44 days, she spoke about the evil captor stating, Junko was raped repeatedly, and while torturing her, they would insert iron bars, scissors, skewers, fireworks, and even a lit light bulb into her, destroying her internal anatomy, which left her unable to defecate or urinate properly. By December 10th, 1988, she was unable to walk properly due to the severe burns on her legs. She was beaten with bamboo sticks and golf clubs. She had her hands smashed with exercise weights. Her nails cracked in such a way to inflict nominal pain. And several days later, the boys poured hot wax on her face. They burnt her eyelids with a cigarette lighter and she was stabbed with sewing needles in the chest. They clipped her left nipple with a pair of pliers and it was ripped off. I wrote some stuff here. I just said that I had to take breaks when I was writing this. Like I literally had to just like put my computer down and walk away. Sadly, 44 days after her abduction and after 44 days of being subjected to unimaginable rape, torture, sodomy, humiliation, and abuse of every kind. On January 4th, 1989, Junko Furuta was murdered. It was reported that when Junko beat her captors at a game of Mahjong, they became enraged and began torturing her. They repeatedly hit her body with an iron barbell until she began bleeding from her mouth. They lit a candle and burned her face and eyes. And as before, they covered her with lighter fluid and set her on fire. Though they put the fire out, her body had just endured too much and she succumbed to her injuries. Scared of being charged with murder. Hmm. Okay. Her captors dumped her body in a 55 gallon drum, filled it with concrete and put it in the back of a cement truck. They then dumped her body that was in the drum in an abandoned lot in Wakasu Koto Ward, Tokyo. So this young girl who was minding her own business, doing everything she was supposed to be doing because she said no to a gross, creepy ass dude, she was kidnapped, assaulted in every way imaginable and kept captive and tortured for 44 days. Yeah. Are you okay over there? Yes, all of that stuff is horrendous and it's awful and I hate it all, right? But weirdly enough, the stuff that makes me the most mad is when they're like, but because they were scared of getting caught. You know yeah. what I mean? I'm like, if you're going to play big boy games, then you like, come on, man. You, you bad? Come on. Come on. Yeah. And that to me, it's like that right there. It's like, you're a coward. You're a coward, yeah. you're a bully in the most extreme sense of the word. You know what I mean? Because it's like, oh, well, we don't want that to happen to us in prison. You know, let's cover our mm -hmm. tracks. Like it's just, it really does. I think we've talked about it before where people who are 
psychopaths or sociopaths, when you are not a psychopath or a sociopath, you try to like make sense of any of it. And I, I really don't think it's possible. I don't think there is a way to rationalize the behavior, the thought process, because there, you know, even if we, if we circle back to like, there's a history of brutality in the Japanese culture, as far as in reference to world war two, there are lots of people who were exposed to that. You know, there were lots of families that went through that right, and they didn't, go but out. not everybody. Yeah. They didn't go out that like, to me, that signifies there has got to be literally there's something wrong. This is a psychopath, a sociopath. Yeah. And I think it's, I would say rare for four boys to find each other that are psychopaths. Yeah. But my brain has to convince, has to be convinced that they are all psychopaths in order for this to happen. I mean, yes, but I mean, look at the, what was it? The Milner? See, I'm not saying that they're not that that that's a for sure thing. I'm saying in order for me to swallow this concept, oh, right. I have to be like their psychopaths because there is no other explanation for this. You get uh, what I'm saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. But to which I would say, what about the Milner case? What about the Milner case of what, 1967, where they conducted that experiment where they had somebody quote unquote shock the other person and like 70% of the people shocked him to death because someone told him to. That's valid. That's valid. But I don't want to, I don't want to hear, my brain doesn't want to hear that. I don't want to believe that non-psychopaths are capable of doing this. Right. And I know that they are. But maybe they are. And maybe we need to talk about that. Like the power of persuasion. Yeah. Don't be persuaded by your a-hole friends to be an a-hole it's okay to be a nice person it's okay go away go away from them shoo go find better people shoo 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 all right so kind of jumping into the next piece for the legal trial for the four perpetrators in the murder of junko furuda hiroshi miyano 18 nobuharu minato Again, now he is known as Shinji Minuto, and I have no problem sharing these people's changed names. He was 16 at the time. Joe Agura, who changed his surname to Kamasaku, 17, and Yasushi Wantabe was 17. What's infuriating about this is that Junko's captors and assailants and murderers were caught by accident. So after her, she died, after Junko passed away on January 4th, 1989, later that same month, two of the four boys who participated in the kidnapping, rape, and um, imprisonment and murder of Junko were arrested for the rape of a 19-year-old woman just a month prior. So they okay, had say done that this. one more time. Two of the four boys who were part uh -huh. of this gang uh-huh when i say gang i mean the um the ones who were responsible for junko mm -hmm. um they were arrested for the rape of a 19 year old woman just a month prior oh okay i get you so this means that they must have been continuously harassing and threatening other other women and girls even when they were harboring and torturing junko 
dude, find a better hobby. Yeah. To, to say that really nicely. That's a really nice way of saying what we all want to say, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. While in police custody and undergoing questioning, these same two boys accidentally confessed to Junko's kidnapping and gave the location of her body. I imagine this was a shock for investigators because they weren't even investigating that. I mean, they were obviously aware of the missing persons case of Junko, but there had been no solid leads as to her whereabouts since that phone call she was forced to make. Mm -hmm. So after investigators heard their confessions, the police went to the disclosed location and discovered Junko's body. And this mm -hmm. was on March 29th, 1989. So after the gruesome discovery, police began to investigate more thoroughly, not only what was at one point a missing persons case, but now a murder case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A few months later, so by this point, it's April 1989, police arrested the other two boys who were part of the original four. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, these boys were minors at the time, right? Yeah. So around uh, at the time of 1989, at that time in Japan, anybody who was under 20 years old was considered a minor. This meant that these boys could not enter into legal contracts like buying a house, right? They could not be tried as adults. The juvenile law relies on the rehabilitation and education of young criminals rather than strict punishment. Where do you think this is going? I don't know, but you better have a, be you better have a happy ending for this or I quit. <laughs> this is my official two weeks notice. If you don't give me some gratification or satisfaction or some law at least i need at least a law that came into effect because of this Good so luck. what this all means is likely shorter prison sentences this also meant that these boys identities had to be protected despite the heinous nature of their crimes okay so now these laws changed in 2022 where the legal age of adulthood in japan was changed from 20 to 18. under laws now in japan the names and photos of offenders who are 18 years old or older can be released to the public after they've been indicted for a crime those under 18 however still remain anonymous okay i'll i'll accept um, it i'll allow it i'll allow it But ha what know. happened to those jerk holes? That's what I'm, I need to know. I'm reading. I don't know if I'm supposed to include this. I'll include it and then I can cut it. It is also noteworthy to mention that since Japan in the early 90s, the list of criminal offenses has also been broadened. And I think part or much of that is due to Jinko's, mur Jinko's murder. Um, and and you'll, we'll talk about how the community fucking erupted after they after we find out what happens okay okay but at the time of her murder Woo! you still have a co-host congratulations yeah. but at the time of junko's murder a juvenile could only face criminal prosecution for murder or quote other acts that resulted in death now they can face criminal charges for robbery rape arson and other serious offenses 
it's rare for juveniles to be tried in the district criminal court. Most are either tried in the family court or summary court, which is the lowest adult court. Okay. But due to the heinous nature of the crime, the boys were tried as adults in Tokyo's district criminal court. However, the judiciary still granted them special provisions reserved for juveniles. Okay. So since Japan had this juvenile law, the main perpetrators, these four boys, were known as A, B, C, and D during the trial to protect their identities. But Junko was identified. She was identified as E, but the court didn't protect her identity, even though she was a minor. Junko's name and face were plastered all over the media and television. So while her murder is being mass sensationalized, the court decided to seal the names of the four captors from the media to protect their identities. I mean, I really don't want to go on a whole rant here, but I, I think the thing that's so frustrating for me is these boys' identities were protected. While Junko, who now, even again in death, is humiliated and didn't have a voice. So this did not sit well with the Japanese magazine, Shukan Bunchun. Some badasses at this magazine decided, hell nah. Hell to nah. the no, 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 hell no, 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 no. That's exactly right. So in their April 20th, 1989 issue, they broke the anonymity of the four rapist murderers <laughs> and released their names. <laughs> I'm sorry. I really do not mean to laugh. That was completely involuntary, like... But it's great. That is, that, good. You know what? Yes. For all those people who are like, but it's not going to make a difference. What is little old me going to do about it? Little old you. you. Here you go. They're like, crack that open, baby. Oh, and I'm about to read a, a quote from them. It's really great. Alyssa Pearl Fusek's article, Furuta, Junko Furuta, The Horrific Murder That Tested Japan, included at the time of her murder, the Shukan Bunshun's editor-in-chief, Hanada Kazuyoshi, talked about the process of acquiring the real names in an interview with Asashi Shimbun. Shimbun was quoted as saying, we use pseudonyms in our first article on the incident. However, while collecting information for the second article, I realized how awful the situation was. So I brought up that we should use their real names to the editorial department. To make a long story short, we decided the beasts don't have human rights. Hanada continued to say that publishing the juveniles real names presented a quote, fairly difficult problem but that they made an exception because it was a very terrible incident. And he recognized that going public with the real names violated literal law 
and noted that there was no pen penalty regulations in place to punish them. So they were just like, come on, let's do it. Dude, I, I'm sorry, but I love it so yeah. much. I don't, you know how I feel about like fighting evil with evil and fighting fire with fire. However, I don't I think do, that's evil. I think that's I was petty and it's great. I was going to say that to it's me, not even petty. Yeah. that to me, I'm like, that is standing up. That is what I would call righteous anger. And like, you are standing up and like, come, come at me, brah. Come yeah. at me. You want to play big boy games? Then we're going to do this. How about we release all your names? How yeah. about we do that? Let's see where you can hide now, my friend. And that's what they did. The first stage of the trials began on July 31st, 1989 in Tokyo. A little less than a year later, on July 20th, 1990, the court held sentencing for the four perpetrators. Okay. However, pro prosecutors only charged them for rape, not for kidnapping, confinement, or murder. Hmm. All four criminals confessed to, quote, causing bodily injury resulting in death rather than pleading guilty to outright murder. Mm. And just the, this is just the judicial system dynamics at the time in Japan. Right, right, right. So the court accepted this. Okay. Hiroshi Miyano, who is the ringleader, um, who is the ringleader of her kidnapping, confinement, rape and torture and eventual murder, was sentenced to, are you ready? Like three years. <laughs> 20 years in prison, the max sentence before life. The second of the four perpetrators, Joe Agura, was he received eight years in juvenile prison. Mm -hmm. The other two boys, Nobuharu, now Shinji, Minato, and Yasushi Wantabe, received five to seven years and five to nine years respectively in juvenile prison. Mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say that the horrific nature of Junko's murder, along with the incredibly flawed prison or judicial system at the time, pissed off literally just about every human being in Japan. Yay good they were aware of the details of the grizzly case um so it wasn't just junko's family who decried the sentencing um phone calls and letters complaining about the light sentences flooded the tokyo district court and the prosecutor's office most demanded the death penalty so mm -hmm. the community was just like no yeah yeah kill him right get them off our streets. The media reported that the sentencing was a gross failing of Japan's juvenile law. Due to the stress and grief, it was also reported that Junko's mother subsequently had a mental breakdown after oh. Junko's murder and was submitted to a psychiatric ward for treatment, which oh, man. I, mean, I mean, yeah, yes. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to quickly, and obviously let's cut out as much of this as we need to, because I, there's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of processing, but again, to be on the other side of this, I, it's got to be so equally hard 
from like a judicial standpoint of like, you know, we have laws in place and our primary focus is, is for the protection, right? Like for the protection of people, um, they're, they're good, right? Boundaries, laws, those things are good. And then I'm sure they were just as baffled on what to do because it's like, I mean, laws are laws and we want to respect our laws, but we had no idea that we would have minors capable of something this brutal. Right. And so again, I think we need to keep that in mind a lot of time with legal systems and thank goodness. I mean, that's why you, you have things that change and that's why you have amendments and stuff like that. But again, you know, they were, they were doing what they are legally bound and that is upholding the law. And that's what the law said at the time, Mm -hmm. at the time they weren't allowed to do anything more than a 20 year sentence. You know what I mean? And I, and I respect legal systems and I respect the people who are like, and guess what? Now we're going to change that. Yeah, for sure. And the Furuta family filed a civil suit against the Minato family Mm. as they should. And they won. The Minato family purportedly paid reparations after selling their home. Oh gosh. That house should be burned down. <laughs> There's not enough saging. And a you garden <laughs> and a garden should be built, a community yeah. garden with a bench. Yeah. With butterflies should be put there. At least a bench. <sighs> if not a bench and a water fountain. I like, yes. We need all the things, an archway, a Zen yeah, garden, a gazebo, everything, everything. Yeah. So after this case, after the, um, sentencing of these four boys, three of the four went on to commit more crimes and hurt more people after their release from prison. Shame on them. Like, come on, man. Hiroshi Miyano, again, the ringleader jealous dirtbag behind all of this. He was released from prison in 1999. So he served nine years. That was out it. Of the 20. He served nine years out of 20 years. For, for he Was he let off on good behavior? <laughs> yeah. Probably. Um, it was also reported that he continued his involvement with the Yakuza, you know, Congratulations on that one. Just five years after his release from prison for Junko's murder, Miyano was arrested for assaulting and confining confining someone at a hostess bar. He went back to prison and was released again in 2009. Four years after that, after changing his surname to Yokoyama, he was arrested again, this time for fraud. So he's just going to die on that hill, man. He's like, I live on this hill. I like it up here. I'm just going to, yeah, I'm not going to turn around too much, too hard to turn around and get off this hill of yeah. dirt baggery. Dirt baggery. Um, Joe Ogura, now Joe Komisaku, was convicted of attempted murder in 2004 and served seven years for that before he was released. Yasushi Wantabe apparently is the only one of the four to avoid further trouble with the law. 
After Junko's murder, he served six years of his sentence and was released in 1996. He now apparently lives with his mother and tries to stay off the radar. Okay. Nobuharu Minato, again, who changed his name and now is known as Shinji Minuto, served his, his sentence in prison. In 2018, he was arrested for attempted murder. Apparently, he beat a man with a baton and attempted to cut his throat with a knife. All reports state that Minato's report was that he had no intention of murder. But given his past and his flighty testimony, the court didn't buy it. Thankfully, media reports were scarce on details, barely mentioning his involvement in Junko's death. Okay. And I, I literally wrote this. If the goal of the Japanese juvenile justice system was to reform delinquent offenders like these four teenage dirtbags, there's never been a more appropriate time to say teenage dirtbags. I mean, pretty right? much. I literally was like, I don't know if I can listen to that song without... I don't know, having PTSD episodes now. Um, obviously, by the three of these perpetrators in Junko's murder reoffending, it obviously failed miserably. I really am so glad that you... Are you finished with your quote? Are you uh, finished with that quote? I mean, with that On the reform? Part. With the reform part? I mean, I still have shit to do, but what do you, what do you need? <laughs> what do you need? <laughs> what are you what are you asking <laughs> i was just gonna say i was like i mean what are they doing over there are they trying to reform them are they just trying to like put them in time out for a bit like what is the purpose of even I don't know. putting them over there like i'm so glad that that was your statement like whatever it was that they you know their juvenile reform system is y'all are kind of not doing it right yeah you're doing it wrong and one japanese news magazine the shukan shinko referred to the three perpetrators continued arrests as a defeat of the juvenile law right Duh. Though the injustice of Junko's case did not immediately create countrywide re reformation for the Japanese justice system, it was fortunately an unfortunate catalyst, if that makes sense. Right. Yes. So in 1997, there was a string of tragic child murders in Kobe, Japan, mm -hmm. involving a minor killing two other minors and injuring three others. This, along with the appalling lack of justice for Junko, the Japanese public demanded real justice for the victims. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, as a result from the Japanese public's demands for justice, Japan's juvenile law was changed in 2000, lowering the age at which a juvenile could be charged with a crime from 16 to 14. Hmm. However, it appears not much more has changed in the Japanese juvenile court system. So, Junko, Junko Furuta was a bright, beautiful young girl whose future was cut, cut short by four terrible humans. Hiroshi Miyano, now Hiroshi Yokoyama, and I'm going to keep saying their names, okay? Mm -hmm. Because society needs to know who, who these four um, individuals are. Nobuharu Minuto, now Shinji Minuto, 
Joe Ogura, now Joe Kamasaku, and Yasushi Wantabe. In hope that the people of Japan continue to remember Junko Furuta and advocating for a social, a justice system that provides not only protection to victims like Junko, but aspires to provide justice for victims like Junko as well. Mm -hmm. And that is the worst, most awful, most unfathomable, horrifying, disgusting rape, torture, murder of sweet Junko Furuta. What if that was your kid? Not Junko. Not Junko. What if the perpetrator, what if one of those four boys was your kid? Have you ever seen that movie, The Good Son? Mm -hmm. The Macaulay Culkin and Mm -hmm. um, Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood. Uh Yep. So Macaulay Culkin, who's like this psychopathic kid, right? Right, right. It's his cousin, right? I think think so. It's his cousin, I'm pretty sure. And Macaulay Culkin ends up like. There's kind of a. There's like a Sophie's Choice situation, right? Yeah, the he mom pushes him like... off the cliff, but but Elijah Wood hangs on, and then the mom gets there just in the nick of time. Mm-hmm. And both boys are, and, and I think when he pushed Elijah Wood off, that he kind of pulled him with him, Macaulay right. Culkin. So these two boys are hanging on this cliff with rocks below them, and the mom comes to try to rescue them, but she cannot get both of them. Yeah, she's holding on to both of them. I can like vividly remember this scene where she's yeah, like she can't save both of them. To both of them, and it's a Sophie's Choice situation. And the Macaulay Culkin is like, "Mom, Mom, I love you, Mom. What are you doing?" And she drops him. She lets yep. go of his hand to save her nephew. She mm-hmm. sacrifices her own son because she knows that mm-hmm. he is a terrible psychopathic monster. I know, and she saves her own son so she saves her nephew yeah sorry she saves her nephew so i say that to say zach and i've actually talked about this like you know if the baby like if she grows up and she kills somebody like what would we do and i'm like sorry about you sorry about you girl sorry Mm -hmm. about your girlfriend um i i've said it in an episode before i hate an enabler more than anything in life i know i know so if it were my child whom I love very much and would literally sacrifice my own life for mm-hmm. ever did shit like this, I'd be like, no, mm-hmm. she, she needs to stay in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's also, and you guys might be like, oh my God, Bailey, like you're such a cold, heartless person, but no. like what kind of quality of life would she be living if she were like that anyways? Right. I mean, like, r- I mean, seriously with no like with no restraints and no because obviously in this specific case they have proven that this was not a one-time you know pleading insanity whatever whatever i mean this this is a they kept her for 44 days well and not only that but after they were released from their juvenile detention continued to assault you know what i mean like this was not a one-time thing and they were like i'm really sorry that was really dumb of us 
right? Like I I see, and I'm with you where, because when you were saying like the fourth um, member of the gang, it's like, he's like, he's kind of below the radar and they're saying that he's living with his mom. I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think, think I would. One's, no, I, I see. I think that one's tough because I think if I were the mom in that case, right. And her son did this awful thing and he gets out, you know, and I'm not saying that he's reformed or he's trying to be a better person, but, but whatever, I think it would give me like my survivor's guilt and my guilt of like what my child did to another human being. And it would give me the illusion of control to keep him in my house and to watch him like a hawk. You get what I'm saying? And if he, if he did anything, if he left the house, I'll track him. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Because at the same time, it's almost like if, if he is able to stay away from crime, Mm-hmm. living with his mother right is that better for society than if he were on the streets turning to these other things too right no a- no absolutely i i just i just part of I'd me cannot when i open with no. a knife under my pillow no for reals but a part of me i think it breaks my heart again as a as a mom and also as a mom kind of that's so Honestly, it's kind of ironic that we talked about like the mom we were before we had kids oh, versus yeah, the mom yeah. we were once it happened. Um because it just breaks my heart for these mothers, like for these family members who you you have to think are like what did I do? And sure. and maybe not, right? Like I at this point you kind of start projecting, you kind of start like fantasizing on what 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 are they feeling and yada yada um maybe there maybe there's an expert out there who knows kind of works with families of um you know professional criminals and and stuff like that maybe we could get some more insight but i'm kind of with you where i'm like no no my friend i love you but you're going to jail or you're going to stay in a psych ward you know or whatever that is like whatever i i think i would I hope and pray that I would be strong enough and bold enough to be like, no, no, ma'am, no, sir. I, I love you, but absolutely not. I will not allow you to ever have the opportunity to hurt another person like 100%. you did. I love and, you and too much to let you do that to another human being. Yes. Um, and I mean, I'm even like that. Zach, again, we talk about all the time, but um, my biggest fear with the baby when she gets older is I'm not worried about teen pregnancy. If that happens, we'll cope through it, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not worried about her totaling my car. You know, if it happens, we'll cope through it. My biggest fear, and and some people are going to think that, again, I'm just this cold, heartless monster. My biggest fear is not losing her, um, like, like her dying because I have belief systems that t- help me take care of that. Mm-hmm. My biggest fear is that she becomes an addict mm-hmm. and that she lives her whole life in her own personal hell for the rest of her life because I've seen it. And I've seen how horrifically painful it is. I had a dad tell me one time that he he was just like, I've already planned her funeral, his daughter. He was like, I already planned her funeral. Um, 
He was like, I've already imagined it. I already, I've emotionally prepared for it. Now I'm just waiting for it to happen. And so if she ever gets into substances, it's a, it's a no ma'am. It's a no No ma'am. We're changing locks. I'm taking your car. I'm taking your credit cards. I'm taking your money. I'm taking your cell phone. You want to be a big girl and you want to do big girl things. You will go out and live in the big girl world and see how that works for you. Mm-hmm. Because the only thing that causes behavioral change is consequences. That's right. it. And so even on that level, right, I have no problem. She goes out with friends. She comes home. She was drinking and driving. I'll call the cops on her. Absolutely. No, ma'am, you are not drinking and driving. You are not putting another family and no, yourself at risk. We're not doing that. Absolutely. No, ma'am. I, you know, I tell kids all the time. I've told, I've told my kids multiple times. I I know we've talked about it a bunch, but the best thing that our dad ever did for us is they said he's, he told, and I don't know if it was the same exact thing for you as it was for me, but for me, it was, you have no restrictions, right? You may go out to parties. You may hang out with friends. You know, you don't have a curfew, but I'll tell you what you won't do you won't be a minor in possession because that's against the law you won't sneak out of the house you won't do drugs you won't do things that are literal like law breaking uh, behavior and if you do those things then obviously i didn't do a good enough job raising you and i will find somebody to do a better job raising you and you will be enlisted in some form of military school (laughs) boot camp your head will be shaved Oh will shave God, your hair. Tell you, did I tell you the time that I asked dad what would happen if I was in high school and I was like, Hey, what, what would you do if you ever found out that I smoked weed? And he was just like, well, the first thing that I would do is I, is I'd turn you in. I'd call yeah. the cops and tell you that I have a minor in my house in possession. He was like, I don't mm-hmm. care if I go to jail, that's fine. I'll get out and you know, I'll bail out or whatever. He's like, you're going to go to jail. And then I'm going to rip up every outfit in your closet except for one outfit you're gonna have to wear that through your like literally however many years you have left in high school you'll get to wear one outfit he was like and i'm gonna shave your head your beautiful red hair gone 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 and he was like and i'll send your ass to boot camp so quick you won't know what happened he was like and i will not come and pick you up no and i i knew that he was one thousand percent serious Oh, no cap one. And and he, (laughs) and we never, and people are like, Oh, Chelsea, did you, did you sneak out? I bet you were rebellious. And I was like, absolutely not. I told Skip and Brenda where the hell I was going. I told them what time I would be home. Could you imagine skipping out with Skip? No. Like, like sneaking out with Skip? Absolutely not. Absolutely we would not, not be here today. We'd be a part of the true crime podcast, not hosting a true crime podcast. No, I would still be living in some like military boot camp. <laughs> you know, I I would still be there. I would now be running yeah, it. But sure. I because he's like, don't come home. Don't, don't come home. Call me Francis. Yeah. No. Uh yeah. So I hate Don't it be every an second. enabler. Yeah, don't be an enabler. If oh, your kid no. is doing nefarious things, no. Yeah. Tell them no, sir. You, no, you will love your, you can love your child to death. You can. How many times have Literally. you said that, Bailey? How many times have you told clients? 
how many times have you told them that you were loving your child to and death? most of the time the parents don't listen to me and most of the time the the client my client their child overdoses and dies yeah i had a um there was a situation once where um i don't want to you know obviously give too many details but I, I was working with this and he was a bright young man he was i don't know in his 20s and he had a pretty gnarly iv um opioid addiction and he i find it took me the entire time he was in rehab to convince him to go to a sober living and he finally agreed to go i got mom on board and i literally worked for like four weeks to get this mother-son duo on board mm -hmm. and he was like i want to go home for the holidays it was like a two-day gap from when he was getting discharged to when he goes sober living and i said no sir uh-uh no nope i don't care i don't care about your warm fluffy little holiday like i care about your life i don't care and um and unfortunately the individuals involved agreed to let him go home to celebrate the holidays with his family and he overdosed in his family living room and died mm -hmm. between the two days that he discharged from treatment and went to sober living. And I'll never forget that I had that mother call me and she was howling just, yeah. uh, I mean, animalistic noises. And she was like, I'm so sorry. I should listen to you. And I was like, I, you do not have to apologize to me. I know. Um, you know, and I just sat with her for probably, I don't know, like an hour on the phone, mm -hmm. just listening to her sob. And so I'm going to tell y'all what drugs will, ch can kill your children. Yes, we know this. Um, but, and you will have that pain the rest of your life. But I don't think that you guys can live with an, with literally loving your child or your loved one to death. That $20 that you give them that they overdose on, can you live with that? Mm -hmm. Can you live with that? I couldn't. I couldn't live with that. Mm -mm. Knowing that I gave my daughter who I knew was an, was an addict $20 for quote unquote gas money and she went and bought a bag with that and she died from it. Mm -hmm. I would never forgive myself for that. Mm -hmm. Well, and so. again, I think, I think what is, and again, I, I've, I've kind of tooted our own horn quite a bit on this episode and I do apologize that that is a little tacky, but I really just, I want listeners to understand that when we say that there are people out there who can help you, we mean there are people out there who can help you and not only can they help you they want to help you oh, and bailey they... bailey you're i mean you're i hate to say it but like you are a prime example like you don't shame them you don't make no, them feel bad never. you know like when that mother called you i mean you're just like you don't never. have to apologize to me and i love you and i'm so sorry that this happened i mean you've always been nothing but sympathetic and empathetic in those situations but you have devoted your adult life to helping and working with addicts and there are multiple there are thousands of people out there who would love for you to say i have an issue can you help me i mean obviously nobody wants that situation to happen and but recovery happens i've seen yeah. it. i've seen spiritual awakenings happen in people i have seen transformations i've seen rec like true recovery i don't mean abstinence i mean recovery yeah 
right from the inside out i have seen recovery and i am a and you've worked nothing short than a miracle and you've worked with amazing individuals who that was their story oh yeah for sure i I mean just so there is hope there is hope there is an answer there you know and I, i more than anything i hope that you guys always know that at the end of these episodes it will be that there is hope there is somebody you are not alone these things can be avoided. They can be fixed. And we love you guys. And we will help you. We will connect you. I won't do anything. I, I have no connections. I will, I will, I'll send you a box You'll of be a tea. Cheerleader, though. I will be yeah. your cheerleader. I got all the connections. So, mm-hmm. um, so. yeah, for sure. And I don't know how we got on to like addiction after this whole thing. I think like we needed a distraction so much. But um, you know, honestly, I, it has to be a form. You can't convince me that there is not some sort of, they are addicted to harming. They are addicted to hurting these people because how, how else, what else makes, makes sense? I don't know. We're going to need to talk to some brain specialists about that. Save that mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. I don't think I am uh able to answer that mm-hmm. um but yeah. we will find a we will find a brain specialist and maybe we can ask yeah. those questions for sure well again thank you for um giving us that story i hated every minute of it but you still do have a co-host so congratulations congratulations i have not walked out yet i almost did but we we turned it around we turned that car yeah. around And as always, if you have not heard it today, you are loved, worthy, and valuable, and we will catch you on the flip side. Bye, Bye, guys. The flip flip side.